Exodus 24, that's where we're going to be for just a few minutes. Since you endured such a long, dreadful time this morning, we're going to have a little shorter sermon tonight. A little quieter. Somebody said you yelled too much, but anyway, maybe it'd be quieter. A couple of things uh, to mention, though, um, and I meant to do that this morning, but Wednesday night starts a new quarter, and we do the Wednesday summer series every year. We constantly look for different things to try, something that we we, f- we think will be compelling and interesting to people. And it may not always work. Uh, last year we had different uh, men of a congregation teach one chapter and move around to classrooms and all. I like that. We'll do that again sometime. But this year uh, we chose to bring in young, Kevin Youngblood from Harding University who does an excellent job of teaching the book of Revelation in a way that not only helps you figure out that story line of Revelation but applies it really well. And, um, and so we decided he's going to come in, and the whole summer is going to be devoted to Revelation. So you better be prepared to think. Don't, don't come prepared for a little devotional let, right? I mean, be re- ready to think. And uh, the first three or four have to be via video. He's created a video for us because he can't be here. The rest of the time, we'll be here in person. So this Wednesday, starting this Wednesday, each Wednesday in the summer, there will not be the initial devotional and singing and announcements at all. You go straight to your classroom. All adult classes come in here. And so it'll be about 45 minutes long, something like that. The bell, we'll do our regular two bells, you know, at that point, at the 48 mark and the 52 mark or whatever they do. But uh, I will have worksheets, which is all the first four, the month of June. I've got them prepared for you. When you come in, uh, you'll have a pen and this worksheet, and you fill that in as we go along taking notes on this. And then when he comes uh, in July... Uh, you'll see him in person and, and be able to take notes that way too. I'll provide them then too. We will not have classes July 3rd. We've learned our lesson. There's no reason in the world to try to come up with teachers when you got camp and everybody goes out to camp, and rightly so, that's where you need to go. But some of you will still be here. So on July 3rd, it's just going to be a devotional out here. No classes. Uh, and then and maybe Cameron will provide the made, a great fireworks show right afterwards right here on the hill. I don't know about that. We'll see if the Spirit moves him or not. But anyway, so Wednesday night, go straight to your classes, and all adult classes come in here for a study of Revelation together. I made um, one of my classic boo-boos this morning. It's, we're not studying about Jonah. Um, we're going to talk about how Joshua was put in, a, in an ark and put on the Nile, and then uh, the... the uh, was discovered by the daughter of the Pharaoh, and then, and then he grew up and built an ark, and a big flood came. And toward the end of it, they threw him overboard, and he was swallowed by a fish, and he marched around on the inside till it got sick and threw him up. And then, uh, and then he took the city of Jericho. So those are the four nights of VBS. Uh, and I'm a great preacher, aren't I? Anyway, so anyway, it's Joshua. It's the whole story of Joshua. So when I said Jonah, I have no idea what I was thinking. But anyway, so there's, there's that correction. Uh, and I think, I think that's all I was supposed to correct. We, we are in uh, Josh, or Exodus, sorry, here we go again. Blah, 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 blah. I, I really, at the end of this reading, I don't know if you, it was a confirmation of the covenant where God made it clear what he wanted and the people said, we hear you, we'll do it all. And at the end, at the end when the covenant was ratified, Joshua and a few others here we go again. Golly. Listen, listen, if I say Joshua the rest of the night, please know it's Moses. Okay, just fill in the blank yourself. Moses gets to go with a few others up, at, up to the top of the mountain or near the top of the mountain, and they see God. Did you get that in the reading? 
They actually see him. Although they only really get to the feet and he's walking on pavement, it's like they're brought into the heavenly city where God is and it's a, it's a beautiful, um, uh, precious jewel street that's clear. I don't know how that works, but that's how it works. And there's God's feet. They get ushered into, and they get this wonderful experience. And I thought of a song that we used to sing, but nobody I know of actually knows the song. I didn't ask Danny because I knew he'd know it, and he would lead it, and the two of us would sing it the whole time. You remember the song, Oh, I Want to See Him and Look Upon His Face? Anybody know this song? There are some, Gary Bucks, that means nobody else knows it. Okay, uh, there's this song we used to sing, Oh, I Want to See Him and Look Upon His Face. It's a song that just talks about one of these days I want to see him. And one of the differences between the Old and the New Covenant is this. As a New Covenant believer, your leaders don't get to see God. We all get to see God. I'm not content sending a few people to tell me what God looked like. I want to go right into his presence. And the way you do that is covenant. So we are in Exodus chapter 24. When we have this covenant renewal, uh, this final, that the Ten Commandments is given, all these other applications of the Ten Commandments have been given, and, and they've heard everything that God's expecting of them. And now God says, you still want me? You still want this relationship? And the people say yes. And the covenant is ratified. They've been rescued by God. God did his gracious work before he ever gave them a law. Before he ever said, I want you to live this way, he already rescued them in amazing deliverance. And then you have the Ten Commandments and the application of those to different things. And then came this strange ceremony. First of all, Moses met with God, came back and talked to the people. And he shared with them again all the rules that God had put on the people. He was clear, he was comprehensive in declaring all these rules. And the people, which ones do the people agree to do? It said they agreed to do all the words the Lord had spoken. They hear it. It registers with them. They know what's expected and they say, yes, we will do them all. And then Moses writes them down. The second time in the book of Exodus, Moses is writing these things down. Gives you evidence that he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And this writing is so very important in just a few moments in this ratification process, but it's a way of objectifying the expectations of God. It's not just I'm going to tell you and you say, well, you know, I don't remember you saying that. It's written as a record, a permanent, objective way of declaring what God expects. You can always go back and look to it. You know what the king, when they, they uh, later on, when they chose a king, you know what the first thing the king was supposed to do when he sat upon his throne? Anybody know what the first thing the king was supposed to do? Write out a copy, his own, of the law of God. He was supposed to, I bet the first two months of the king's reign, he sits down and he writes down every word by his own hand with his own ink pen. He writes down the words of God. Why do you think God did that? It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to take your hand and write every word down. I want you to know you are responsible for knowing the words of God. So Moses writes them all down. And then he builds this altar. Moses builds an altar before the laws of sacrifice are given in the book of Leviticus. He, writes, he, he builds this altar and they offer up burnt offerings, which is for their sins and total devotion to God. And then peace offerings, which celebrate their fellowship with God, where they'll even eat with God a portion of it. Total devotion and restored relationship with God. And then the blood from those two sacrifices is pooled, right? 
And one portion, half of that blood, was started to be thrown on all the altar and the different things that are used on that altar. He's consecrating it, setting apart for use for God. That's half the blood. Then Moses takes the book that he wrote, and he reads again all the words. We're, we're, these people have had plenty of time to back out of this, and then they commit to doing all the words of the law. They've had time to think about it and hear it again, and they say, yes, we're going to agree to all of it. And then he takes the second part of that blood, and he tosses it on the people. It's a very strange image. It's called the blood of the covenant. You ever heard that language before? You heard it in a reading right before the Lord's Supper this morning. Blood of the covenant. It's a little mysterious what that blood was for, but that's part of the whole thing. Moses and some others went up on the mountain and they saw God. Once covenant is established, seeing God is possible. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they will what? See God. Hebrew writer says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we have the Old Covenant, and you're saying, what's this got to do with us in the New Covenant? That's a good question, because it is the Old Covenant. It's the way people before Christ were in relationship with God. We are under the New Covenant, the way people who relate to God today do so through Jesus. But there are some similarities between the two covenants. The one that you live under is very similar in some ways to the old one. Both covenants were initiated by God. We had nothing to do with either one of them. And they're both voluntarily entered into by God's people. You have a choice about whether you want to relate to God or not. God graciously makes His will available to us, but you have to agree to it. And some will then go on and say, but the Old Testament was law and the New Testament was grace. And that's totally wrong. Both covenants are grace. Both covenants are law. And grace always comes first. We love God because He, yes, God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, then gave them the covenant and said, will you be in relationship with me and obey these laws? Yes. God rescued us on the cross long before we ever were even born and long before we ever created the problem that He'd have to fix. He had a solution even before we were born and had a problem. Grace always comes first. And this presents a question for people. When you read in the book of Romans, a lot of people justification by faith and all that. Are we children of God because we obey His Word, or do we obey His Word because we are the people of God? You see, this matters because a lot of people think that when Paul says, you, the, you, you, can't, you can't work your way to salvation, the Jews never thought you could work your way to salvation. They always thought they were God's people, and because they were God's people, they follow His law, just like the commandments were. You don't earn your salvation by doing God's will and receiving a just-deserved salvation spot. You are saved by God, and then you obey His Word. And that's really important for you to get. It's important for all of us. Both covenants require obedience to the words of God. 
God laid out everything that He expected of the people and He gave them an option to look it over and decide if they're going to do it. And He's objective. He writes it down on paper. He lets them know, I'm not trying to hide anything from you. I'm not putting anything in small print. I'm not trying to surprise any of you. It's called the Book of the Covenant. And you always consult it to know what the will of God is. What does God think about this? Go to the Book of the Covenant. That's what reveals it. Many argue there's no such expectation in the New Covenant, right? It's about what God does, not what we do. But there's a couple of passages I want you to see. First uh, Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are the elect exiles of all those cities, right? Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So God chose us. For the sanctification of the Spirit. For what? What were you chosen for? Your good looks? Your talent? How effective you are at representing God. You're chosen for what? Say the word. You're chosen because you'll be obedient. When you sign on, when you sign on for the salvation of God, you sign on for obedience. It's not something extra and optional. It's what you sign on for. It's sort of like when you pick a guy on your kickball team, and you know when it's recess time. Okay, I'm pushing all of you back into your past. Who knows about recess anymore? At recess time, you picked your teams, right? Everybody picks the people who can kick well in kickball. And the reason I pick you is not because you are got red shoes or you got cool hair or whatever. Like I pick you because I know that you'll play the game well. That's why I pick you. That's why I was never picked. But that's why I pick you. Now, I pick you enough times and you're terrible. I'm not going to pick you anymore. The reason I pick you is to be on the team. You know why God picked you? So you'll obey him. He picked you to obey him. And if you think he just picked you and you can just live any way you want to, that's so foreign to what God expects. I'll give you an example of this also in Romans chapter 1. Uh, and you can see in red what I'm talking about. If you can see that in red, I'm not sure. Okay, so Paul, he describes this wonderful story of how from, from the flesh, he was the son of David, Jesus was, talks about the gospel, and he's declared with, uh, to be the son of God with power through the spirit of holiness by his resurrection, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. It's our job, he says, to be an apostle, to bring about the what? You know what his job is and what Scripture's job is? To bring you about to obedience. We are expected to do the words of God. So for anybody who thinks that we, are, we ever stress grace so much that obedience doesn't matter, that's not true. But here's an interesting question for us in application, for one. How much does a person need to know to respond to the gospel? Do they need to know what's expected of them afterwards, before they're immersed? I want to poll on this one because this is an interesting question. How many think you need to share with a person what's expected after they become Christians before they become Christians? How many think you should? Not many. How many of you think that we just need to get them to understand Jesus, Son of God, and confess it with their lips and be saved, and that's all they need to know? Raise your hand. Some of you are very noncommittal, like you haven't really decided in this. I'm always, I know that there, you don't have to know just a whole bunch to be able to know what you need to know to be saved and make it effective. But listen, here's the thing. Before God signed them on to covenant, he said, I want you to understand all that's expected before you sign on to this thing in the Old Testament. 
And it sounds very deceptive, doesn't it, when we say, hey, all you have to do is know this, and as soon as they come up out of the water, now come to church twice a week, three times a week, a Bible class, and blah, 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 and they're like, whoa, 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 you all so nice, and it was so easy before this. Now you're putting on a bunch of stuff on me. Sounds like small print from the Toyota factory, doesn't it? I don't know, I kind of think sometimes that what we need to do is be a little more careful and a little more, uh, a little more uh, time-oriented with people and share with them what's expected afterwards so that when they sign on, there's no surprises. How do they know they want Jesus to be Lord of their life if they don't know that He's going to be pretty invasive? He's going to come in and give them instruction on their sex life and their thought life and the words they speak, and suddenly everything falls under his jurisdiction. Why didn't anybody tell me this before? Both covenants are established on sacrifice. You have the book of the covenant as the stipulations, and you have the blood of the covenant that was the foundation of it. This is weird. I don't really understand this. I know from Hebrews and Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's a law that's just kind of put in. You think, why? I don't know. Is putting this blood on the people, is this like saying, now you are blood relation to God? Is putting this blood on the people saying, this, this is obligating you to this covenant even at the cost of your life? You may remember in Genesis 15 when they cut the animals, Abraham cut the animals and he marched in between the animals and made a covenant with God, the parts of the animals. And God was like, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't keep this covenant. You're going to be cut in half. That could be what this is. I'm not really sure. But for whatever reason, the blood of the covenant was what was required to make that first covenant work. And I also know that our covenant, the new covenant, has the same thing. There is a blood of the covenant that makes it work. And we know this on the night Jesus was betrayed, right? He observes the Passover with them and he says, by the way, drink this fruit of the vine. It doesn't represent what it used to. It now represents the blood of the covenant, the blood that will be shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And the only difference is he doesn't throw it on people. He asks us to consume it and make it inside. Like it really cleanses the inside of the person and not just the outside. It cleanses your conscience from the inside out. There is no way we can ever relate to God without having the blood of Jesus on us too. It is the blood of the covenant. Cleansing us from our conscience. Now the purpose and the function of a covenant was to establish a relationship that could be sustained. So God's got His obligations to us. When you become in relationship with God, He has obligations to you. And you have obligations to Him. And both parties also receive benefits. But I'm a little bit stumped by this one. Try to try this. What does God get out of, out of the covenant? What is... What wonderful blessing and benefit does God get from us that motivates Him to start a covenant with us in the first place? He's got an awful lot of obligations. He saves us from our sin. He gives us His Holy Spirit. He empowers us with the Word of God to know what's right and what's wrong. He gives us all sorts of blessings. But what kind of blessing does God receive from us? Praise? But does he need that? 
I just ask that question because I think here's the deal. When you compare this covenant, what we get for what we have to give, we got the much better end of the deal. We receive some amazing things from God, and He receives the glory that comes from having human beings voluntarily give Him praise. It's a wonderful deal. It's a deal that everybody should know about. It's a deal everybody should make with Him. You can be in relationship with the living God if you honor His covenant and the benefits from it as Moses, Nadab and Abihu, some of those others who are there get to see. The new covenant allows this, allows us to see God. And it, without holiness, no one will see it. But here's the beauty of it. The covenant makes us holy. And tonight, you are a holy group of people. You've been in God's presence today. You're living in covenant with Him. You've got the ongoing blessing of relationship with each other and the forgiveness of sins. You are in the sight of God, holy, striving to make yourself in the sight of people holy. And because of that, you're going to see God. That's something to be rejoicing about. That's something to be confident in. That's something to live your life for. Because the truth is, I think the Christian life is the best life to live. I think it warns us from all the danger spots of life. But the ultimate thing is this. It allows you to know you're going to see God. And anything less is not good enough. Have you ratified a covenant with God? You know what He expects of you? to turn your life over to Him. The Lordship of Christ means He becomes head over you and His will becomes your will and it's the guiding force of your whole life. And all it takes is for you to confess your sin, repent of your sin, and name the name of Jesus and be immersed. And you rise to walk a new life and you're in covenant relationship with a living God. And you have a reservation to be able to see Him one day. If you don't have that covenant, you don't have that relationship with God, why in the world not? I can't think of any good reasons. You get all the best benefits. It does cause you to have obligations to Him, but they're minor compared to what He does for you. And if there's anyone here who's not ratified your end of the covenant, you've not confirmed your covenant with God, tonight's the night to come and say, you know what, I want to honor all that God says and allow His blood to be put on me. It's available right here, right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.